Hello and welcome to Writers Group Therapy. I'm Tom. And I'm Roshni. We're Writers Helping Writers. Are you ready for your session? The doctors are in. And if you like what you hear, make sure you subscribe, share it with your friends, give us a five-star rating on iTunes. You can find us online at Writers Group Therapy and also WG Therapy on Twitter and Instagram individually. Uh, Tom underscore Loveman on Twitter, Tom Loveman on Instagram and Twitch. And I am at Moon Lily Music on Instagram and at Roshni Lamino on Twitter. So we will be joined later on by, did he come in? Uh, no, I'm watching for him. So oh, okay. I'm, if I'm distracted during this, I mean, normally you don't see us because we're usually <laughs> doing just audio. I'm trying to, pro, uh, what do you call it? Produce and, and host. It's kind of, kind of tricky here, but oh, you uh, got this. yeah. So, so if we you will have, be joined later by Stephen Smith, but in the meantime, let's chat. Okay. Uh, it's, you know, it's weird. We, we went to doing this monthly a, a few months ago or late last year and then because of the uh, crisis and the lockdown, we wanted to keep ourselves busy. So we started doing it. This has been weekly. And I think we've had more news in one week than we usually have in, in one month. In so one day, it one feels day. like. I, I feel like I send you like 5 million articles. Like, what about this? What about this? Yeah. Um, I think Hollywood reporters should just pay us to do their uh, newscast because we're basically right? yeah, talking about all the Hollywood reporter oh, stuff. If you hear As Hollywood Hollywood blows reporter, up around call us. Me, call me Hollywood reporter. <laughs> We're your new uh, live show. Uh, you don't oh even gosh. know it. Uh, well, there's, so, a, there's a lot to think about right now. I guess, I mean, so basically production is gone. Stop. Um, pretty much everything's stopped. Yep. Everything is stopped. So life as we know it and pilot season is not there. But it's a, you know, and everyone says this is a good time to like, you know, finish up the script, dust off your headshots, whatever. But I mean, should you be sending query, query letters right now? Should you be looking for an agent? Should be, you be pitching? What should you be doing? Should you, first of all, and how? Right. Well, well, I don't, you know, I was thinking about doing it. I mean, uh, I've seen articles about development is still going ahead full speed. Um, you know, people can work from anywhere doing that, reading scripts, you know, and we've, we've read about um, people having online meetings, Zoom and what have you. One article I read on, on that said that this kind of new still, and they're still kind of figuring out how they want to use it, how it's going to, um, you know, work in their, in their regular, you know, pitch meeting kind of flow, how they run things. They kind of, some, some people were saying it's kind of like a trial run to see how it goes. You know, so I, it's not that like you don't want to be the first to be doing that, but there are pros and cons. You know, yeah. there's, there's, you can still have a meeting because of the technology, which is great, but you don't have that live in person kind of excitement. You know, you're, you have to really project your enthusiasm through the camera because they're, you're not in the room physically. And then um, there's the distraction problem. You know, they could have their kids running around in the background or the dog barking or, someone's delivering a package, you know, um, yeah. that kind of thing. Uh, so, there, you know, I mean, I feel like when you're in person with people, there is definitely an organic connection. Like, you know, before you even start the formal pitch, maybe you see something in their office and you guys connect on like, Oh, Hey, yeah, I went to that school too, or whatever. Whereas like, it is very intimate to hello, Steven. Sorry. Just finish up this thought real quick. Um, so, hello. Uh, but it is very intimate to, uh -oh. have an interview with somebody and you can see into their world a little bit but at the same time you know you do kind of lose a little bit by not being able to shoot the breeze with them in person so yay we are joined by stephen smith we'll interrupt that thought we'll come yes back to yes we'll come that. back to more of that hi stephen how are you doing <laughs> how are you 
Hello there. I just joined you audio-wise, and I apologize. Is this live? Is this happening right now? We are live on Facebook, yes. Um, if you uh, are watching this later, this will not be live, obviously. We will be putting uh, the audio version of this podcast on our regular uh, podcast stream. But this is live, and there's well, Stephen. Looking good, Stephen. All the more reason to, to say I'm terribly sorry about being late. I oh, no. <laughs> a production design malfunction. I was set to go when the uh, the curtain covering the window behind me that was going to be my uh, background just collapsed. So oh, I not realizing you were live. I was scrambling to redirect. and uh, I was adjusting lights myself, so it's okay. <laughs> Sorry about Actually, that. That, that's right there what we were just talking about before you joined us about the pros and cons of doing pitches and stuff on Zoom versus on, you know, in person yes. with people. Have, have you been having any meetings or uh, pitch sessions? Wait, or? wait, wait, wait. We have to do the formal intro, time. Oh, You're sure. Go ahead. Sorry. Ahead. I'm stepping okay, on it. Okay, so we have had Stephen on our show before, but we are so happy to have you again. He is a PGA and TV Academy member, four-time Emmy nominee, producer and writer of over 200 documentaries for television, home video, and other media. He has two books out. The new one is called Music by Max Steiner, The Epic Life of Hollywood's Most Influential Composer, due out in May. And he has an article coming out in the Wall Street Journal very soon, which I do want to ask you about. So now let's talk. <laughs> you are my new publicist. Thank you for all of that. And again, thanks yeah. for having me. And boy, what interesting times to be talking in. And, and to, to go back to your question, Tom, I've had a lot of meetings and conversations on Zoom. Um, they have been mostly book-related these days. So uh, it, it, although I did take a dance class in Malaysia, that is, they were in Malaysia. <laughs> I was in oh, that's college. cool. That was kind of fun. What kind of dance was it? Was it oh, Malaysia? Just, yeah, swing dancing. Which, so, swing oh. dancing from Malaysia. That was wonderful. It it even stranger. And, and there are dozens of classes happening every day, I'm happy to say. Probably in everything you can imagine, definitely in swing. But I, uh, like many people, I'm married to someone who's not into it like I am. It's a weird reversal where, where the, the, the female doesn't want to dance and the guy <laughs> likes the dancing. So, so I'm doing lots of solo dancing and our teachers are using lots of brooms and uh, chairs. <laughs> Uh, with imaginary partners or we're just learning you know steps on our own with the, the man or the invisible woman so there you go but that's uh, far afield from where we had started but but i think it is all related in that it, in in a relatively no in an extremely short time we've all really changed our lifestyles haven't we i mean we're learning to at least we're, we're adapting to this new uh world and it is one that is both obviously very scary and if one takes a few steps back, um, it, his, it's full of potential, I think. Um, and, and I wanna preface our conversation by saying that it, it feels funny talking about uh, one's projects at a time when there's so much scary stuff happening and sometimes it's people we know and care about and, uh, or it's just news that we hear that is alarming and concerning. And my wife is someone who's always had rather weak lungs and she's you know fine, but we just have to be extra cautious. So we sort of started self-quarantining about a week or two before everyone else when, uh, when it first just seemed like it could be coming our way. So I've, I've been really practicing as we all are having our communication and doing our meetings and, and sharing our ideas with people in this in this new format. So, so in what I hope was a, a sufficient disclaimer to say, I know that everything I say now is gonna sound really frivolous in the context of what's going on. Let's talk about being creative people uh, in the time of plague. 
<laughs> so you haven't seen a slowdown at all. I mean, I know you're gearing up because your book's coming out in May when hopefully, you know, people can go out and buy a physical book instead of, you know, pulling up in their house. But you haven't seen a slowdown as far as marketing or pitching or creating or anything like that? Well, I apologize if I gave that impression because, uh, no, I have seen the slowdown quite a mm -hmm. bit, uh, but I think it's an, it's an adaptive one where everyone's sort of figuring out first, are we all okay? You know, what do I need to have at home? Do I have enough food? Do I have enough this? But then people are, to the extent that they can, moving on with their lives. And uh, uh, my book is being published by Oxford in, in the main offices in New York. So I've been able to it's always been a long distance relationship for the most part. So whether it's an email or a phone call or a Zoom, you know, that pretty much continues. In terms of do people want to read books? Do people want entertainment right now? Um, I think that the answers have qualified definitely uh, more than ever. Uh, I, I'd be curious to hear what your responses are, but when I talk with, with friends or colleagues and I ask how they're doing, they most have moved on to the point of saying, we're going crazy. We, we're getting a little stir crazy. We want to more and uh, I'm watching this and I feel like I've watched everything on that channel and all of that so it's funny how adaptive we are as a species to you know once we decide that we're going to you know live for the next 24 hours it's like well what's the next Netflix thing that I haven't watched yet or what's the next book I haven't read or whatever it is so uh, and, and this whole situation that got me thinking also and, and reading a little about the past which I love to do by my, my main subject is, is the past and trying to make uh, people's lives uh, from from relatively recent times but a few couple generations back make those feel like they're happening right now that they're present and exciting so so I used what's going on as kind of an excuse to to read about things and and I was reminded that Shakespeare who lived to be 52 as I recall uh, in his late 30s 40s I, I meant to check the date before but there was a, a major plague in London that closed the theaters and he had to adapt and he kept writing and people kept wanting to be entertained and life went back to normal. And then there was a, a really cataclysmic situation in, in London, especially across Britain. But in 1665 to 1666, there was the Great Plague of London that came after the Great Fire of London. And uh, a lot of major architecture was lost and millions of people, I think, unfortunately lost their lives. But uh, a writer, uh, we, we need writers, uh, a writer named Samuel Pepys uh, kept a diary. And it's a book that has never gone out of print because it, he provides such a vivid account of everything from his, let's euphemistically call it dating life, uh, transactional dating life, to what it was like being in London where things were closed up and it was scary and, and the world was changing in this kind of rapid way like it is now, except they had even less scientific information, of course. They were really uh, uh, grabbing any at any straws to figure out how to try to control this. So, you know, it, it reminded me that we've been here before, not us. Hopefully this is one time for us, but, but writers and creative people from Shakespeare on down have gone through it and then set up, you know, sat in front of the equivalent of the laptop and started working again. And that's what I encourage everyone to do. And and uh, I, I was reading, the LA Times had an article of, well, are our best crime novelists going to be writing stories set in this time? And I thought, absolutely. I mean, imagine what a great, we're always looking for in, in fiction obstacles for our dramas and cell phones kind of ruined you know, the, the ability for people to not connect with each other, you know, the, the running joke that you couldn't do Romeo and Juliet now because they just call each other and go, I'm not really mad, you know. <laughs> um, but, uh, but now with these separations and 
happening all over the place. I think, you know, yes, we're going to see stories that are set in this time period. What, what we're living in now that seems so present tense and, and alarming is going to be uh, a nostalgic past, maybe not nostalgic, but definitely a past where we uh, read all these stories set in, in this time period, just like, uh, just like the 1990s and all the chaos of that in Los Angeles had been the backdrop for a lot of really good fictions. So, you know, it has changed, but I, I think it's, it's going to fire the creative cylinders for a lot of people. And, and in the short term in my life, yes, it does raise questions of when you're, you're marketing a non-essential book, a biography, uh, how do you do that in a way that is, is considerate and sensitive to people in their time? So the main thing I did was just to do, not do very much of it, but, and, and to wait and see how things were going. And, and the book isn't going to be officially released until May 1st. So I always saw it as sort of a later summer, fall sort of campaign. But uh, now I realize it'll be largely a virtual one, I suspect. And uh, also... Um, I, I think the people, just as in the, the Depression, and from, you know, which really started in about 1930 after the Wall Street crash of 29, for, for most of the 1930s, people didn't, most people didn't have money. It wasn't really until World War II that, that business got going again. So people loved going to the movies, and that's when musicals came back and were big, and that's when a lot of great comedies were made, and the screwball comedy genre was invented. So people you know, desperately needed entertainment. So I would say for anyone who's got a project out there that is just ready to be released, and we're already seeing it in the film world, aren't we? Uh, where everything from art house movies that would be at the, the Lemley theaters in our Los Angeles case, or, you know, mainstream movies like Emma and the Invisible Man. The studios have said, you know what? It's now on TV. You can buy this, you know, rent it or buy for $20. And I, I, no one, to my knowledge, has thought that that was crass or insensitive. It was sort of like, oh, great. Then I get to have some new entertainment and talk about something. And, you know, watch parties, obviously, are, are, are a big deal now. So we're inventing a new form of human communication. And I, I think that's... It's fascinating. I think that your show is going to reflect this new world we live in and be, you know, already it's, it's hugely entertaining. It's going to be more relevant than ever as we all kind of figure out how we communicate with each other. Yeah, I've been using Zoom daily for things. Uh, I was uh, an audience member of a live open mic night the other day. Friends of mine or a couple comedians got uh, a dozen or more comedians together. They each did five minutes. It was really cool. That was fun. And then we've been having our writers group meeting virtually as well. And how did you feel after each of those experiences and during them? Um, they were fun. I felt close, you know, because it actually felt closer than like if you went to a comedy club, you'd be sitting somewhere in a large room. And that is kind of a joint experience. And uh, but this way, you're like literally face to face with the comics and you could actually interact. Yeah. They could see you laughing. They, you know, when you're on stage as a comedian, you got headlights in your eyes. Yeah. You can't yeah. see the audience. You can hear them, but you can't see them. And uh, I mean, there's some technical issues we had to overcome with, you know, uh, when you're doing this particular Zoom, uh, when someone talks, their picture sometimes pops up. So people would be laughing or talking or shuffling things around and they would jump up in front of where the guy was performing, performing, I guess you could call it. So we had to work out some of the etiquette, I guess you would call it, of uh, Zoom uh, entertainment. That's really interesting because, and, and forgive me if you've already talked about this, but have you uh, discussed the late night shows and how they've adapted? Uh, not yet. Um, have you been watching them? I've been watching Colbert and um, John Oliver. Yeah. Some fun stuff. I, I love Seth Meyers also. And I, mm -hmm. I 
also watch Samantha Bee's show, and they are all doing, you know, very, and, and the others, they're all doing variations on the same thing, which I think has been kind of really successful. And, and that is the kind of, well, I'm in my backyard, or Colbert did his first show in his bathtub, but then he got a little more real and was just cooking in the backyard, having more of a beard and talking, and, you know, his dog kind of video bombed the show and knocked over the camera the other day. And, and so people are embracing the kind of DIY quality of it. And at first, when he did the first, when Colbert did his first show after the national emergency was declared that um, Friday, Thursday, Friday uh, week of the 12th and the 13th, he was still in his studio, except it was just him and his crew and John. His staff was the audience, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was like kind of watching the last telecast on Earth before, you know, the sun we went into the sun. It was just yeah. dead air, and he was joking about how bad things were. But the emptiness of the studio was really painful, and and it wasn't funny, but it was fascinating because it was kind of like you realized how how real it was for celebrities too. And then I think there was kind of a week off, probably while we all scrambled and you know bought our food and hunkered down, and and then they came back, and now this new approach is really I think kind of working generally from what I've seen, which is just the really informal. Uh, you know, telling jokes, but holding for a laugh and kind of interacting with family or whoever's around. And it just feels like what you guys are doing here. Uh, it's, it's separate, but it has a certain intimacy to it, which is nice. Yeah. What you're describing. I was just saying, I think people feel the connection. It's comforting to see a familiar face that you see all every night when you watch their show, but to see them kind of just relaxing and kicking back and doing their jokes, but at home and knowing that the world still goes on, even though we're kind of all stuck at home. I, so I think it's therapeutic uh, that we all kind of still um, gather around the, uh, you know, the screen in the evening and, and share those daily experiences. Yeah. It's, I was going to say, it's interesting with the late night, we haven't actually touched on them, but um, I've been watching Conan and uh, Jimmy Fallon and a little bit of Jimmy Kimmel. And it really, their personalities really shine through, especially because I think they're the ones having to write their own jokes now. They don't, they can't rely on their staff as much. And so you can kind of see like who's, you know, who's very clever or who just relies on a wacky personality or whatever. And you're like, huh, you know, it's interesting. It's kind of fun. Yeah, it does feel like, you know, I'm sure they're able to still you know, communicate with the writers and such, but, but yes, they're definitely playing more into the moment and it's almost more improvisatory comedy on the spot mm -hmm. based on what's happening. Yeah, and that's, it's, it's fun. It's, and again, it's to use that cliched word disruptors, you know, our, our history is about disruptions and boy, are we going through one now, but I don't think in any way it's, it's, I was going to say it's not going to hurt entertainment. It will hurt some entertainment. I, I think movie theaters are in big trouble because they were always kind of the, the shrinking ice flow that the polar bears were jumping between as, as, uh, as, as studios wanted to release their new movies sooner to the streaming markets and have them play less in theaters. The theater exhibitors were saying, hey, wait, we've got to stay in business. We need, you know, exclusive time. And now that these movies are getting released, you know, day and date because they can't be shown in theaters. It's really going to be interesting to see if theater exhibition will, will stick around. I think we'll always have it to some extent, but I think people are going to really want to go out for a special event, a great theater, an amazing, you know, date night or whatever. Uh, but yeah, it's, it, I think that's going to change, but you know, I think we're resilient uh, as a species. And uh, I think that, uh, yeah, I think some interesting stories. Rashmi, what are you working on now? I'm sorry you haven't had a chance to be more in this conversation. <laughs> oh, it's all You're good. You're not supposed um, to ask the questions. That's true. We're just having a conversation. 
finish it now, really. Um, so my podcast, Expat, is actually the third episode just dropped this week. Great. So there's six episodes in the season. And um, it's interesting because it launched on March 17. And I thought, what horrible timing, because that was when we were beginning to go into lockdown and like the whole country was freaking out. And I, I, it was so funny. I had sent out all these press releases and everything, no bites, because there was a little thing called COVID-19 kind of overshadowing everything. And I thought, oh my gosh, like maybe I shouldn't release it now. You know, what horrible timing. And then I was like, kind of like what you were saying, Stephen, people need entertainment more than ever, you know, and if at least one person hears it and it touches them and it kind of takes their mind off things, it was successful, you know? So there's that. And then working on my first novel, so we'll see what happens. Yeah. I want to hear more about that. (laughs) And then we'll get back to interviewing you. It's a fantasy novel, which is kind of different for me. I normally write comedy, as you know. So, but I read a lot of fantasy sci-fi and I thought, well, why not? I see film made by a very talented filmmaker. There you go. Or should I say science fiction film? I know there's a difference in the genres, but uh, (laughs) wow. Well, that's great. Yeah, that's fun. Oh, um, well, Roshni has inspired me to some extent. Uh, I uh, have started to take an idea I had a few years ago, and I'm revamping it as a narrative podcast. It's a drama mockumentary kind of thing. Uh, I don't want to go into too much detail, but uh, you know, I've gotten a lot, a lot done in the last week since uh, we actually started a writer's, um, we call it the Coronavirus Writing Challenge. <laughs> and Roshni and another friend of ours, Jamie um, Jessup, uh, have kind of, you know, kind of created a three-way, um, oh, God, I don't want to say that. It was wrong. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Uh, we, we created a, this is a live. Uh, we created, yeah, live. Oops. Uh, we created a, you know, a group where we're, uh, we're just checking in every week to, you know, accountability group uh, to see where we are on our projects to make sure we're all still, we actually inspired Jamie to work. Uh, I think she and her husband sat down and did four notes on a TV pilot they're working on. Uh, four pages yeah, of notes. Yeah, they, you know, so yeah. we're kind of encouraging and, and, and inspiring each other to keep busy and keep writing during this lock-in period. And uh, yeah, it's working. So I've, uh, I've made some big strides on that project that I'm working on. It's, and it's kind of appropriate because it does have to do with um, uh, biological uh, terrorism and stuff like that. So little, little conspiracy theory stuff in there. So well, that's great. That's great. And I love that idea of the Corona writing challenge because that's, that's one thing that I, I've been very aware of is uh, I always work better when there's a deadline. And if there isn't a deadline, I make one. And because the major writing that I had been working on for the last few years is sort of done and I've been more in a promotional mode, I, I felt initially after March 13th, when we all started to shut down, it was really hard for me to do anything creative the week after that. And and I wanted to just because I think our brains, we always like like to be creating things and, and, and doing things, writing, whatever, acting in your cases also. And I was so happy that I had to, I was asked to write an article for Wall Street Journal about uh, film music because it had a deadline, I had to do research, I had to talk, uh, read a few books for it. And it gave me a great sense of purpose just when I sort of needed it. And I would encourage anybody out there watching or listening that if you just find that you're in a funk and you can't get started on something, just create a, a fake deadline. Maybe, you know, if you have a significant other or someone you're in the house with, they have, they're gonna remind you about that deadline. And whether it's a short story, a poem, a stand-up routine, give yourself a, a, a reasonable, not huge, not writing a novel yet, but just writing a small thing and have to have it done by a certain time because 
you know, history, I think uh, many of our favorite writers wrote because they had to pay a bill. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's just, it doesn't mean they're not creative. It just means that that is the spur that makes people focus. So I would say if you don't have uh, anything happening and if it's hard to focus and, I, and I'm really trying to click less often on, on the news and New York Times or whatever your sources, uh, uh, that's sort of a beginning and end of day thing. But just give yourself a deadline and work through it. And you know what, if it's, if it's not, if you don't think it's good, that's fine because either you move on to doing something else or it's the first draft that's gonna be better when you go back to it. Uh, every project I think I've ever tackled, and, and I'm not saying this is the best way to work, but it's just my system, is after thinking a little bit, I try to just write something down and knowing that it will at least give me a departure point when I look at it the next day to say, oh my God, that was terrible. What was I thinking? And then rewriting it. Uh, and, and when I really, you know, when I had to start writing a, a 500 page book about somebody who lived for 83 years and it was a big, big story. And where do you start? Uh, as an exercise, I decided to just think about uh, almost writing a screenplay and like an opening scene that was a real grabber. And then I read some of my favorite biographies by some of my favorite prose writers. And I literally just looked at the shape of their sentences, how many paragraphs they had on the first page. And I just sort of absorbed that and thought, okay, let's see if this works as four sentences in a paragraph and I'm gonna start with that scene. And the end result of course was nothing like what I started with, but just by giving myself some perhaps artificial parameters, but parameters all the same, it got me thinking into a certain way. And then I, every day got easier and easier and I just wrote more, more fluidly after that. So I know that uh, Stephen Sondheim, who writes both music and lyrics for his Broadway shows, he, I'm gonna paraphrase him poorly, but he said something to the effect of, I can't write a love song, don't tell me to write a love song, but if you want me to write a song about someone who's in a bar in Manhattan at four o'clock waiting for their husband who hasn't, you know, in other words, give a premise, yeah. then he loves the specificity of that and he's off and, and running. So I think sometimes we just have to find, uh, for a want of a better word, tricks to convince us to, that we can do it. And by just doing it, you have done it. You know, create something, anything. and. That doesn't work for everyone. I, I have a dear friend and a, a mentor I went to school with who really thinks a lot and, and about writing and, and really just works on one sentence at a time and, and does it brilliantly. So, but, but if you're finding yourself, a, the, the, the great you out there, all, if anyone's struggling, just make up some rules and, uh, or take a movie that you saw that you liked and just write the first scene of your screenplay so that it's the same length as that scene or something. And it's just a way to kind of fool yourself into uh, relaxing the, the self-critic, I think, that we have. Uh, Especially just, at this time. Yeah, <laughs> just getting started, though. Yeah, that's one of the hardest things sometimes. You know, you just have to start writing. Once you get started, then it starts to flow, I find, naturally. Yeah. Um, yeah, I find um, when I'm doing like taking a shower or I'm, I'm like just doing something else, that's when the scenes come to me, you know, but then you have to write them down and then they kind of just, they, now that I've started this project, they just keep coming to me no matter where I'm at. I'm like, oh, there's another scene I can write. And so. Stephen, I want you to talk about this article you wrote for the Wall Street Journal. You mentioned oh, well, it a little bit, but please elaborate. That's, that's very kind of you. If they don't run it, I'll be very embarrassed. So I will say uh. to but, uh, they have but you wrote it. That's all that matters. I wrote it. Yeah. Thank you for asking, Rashidi. Yeah. I was. Let's just say I was very flattered that they asked me to to give a little history of, of film music from a certain perspective. That was fun because that's a subject that I love. I love movie music. Uh, my first book was about a film composer, and in writing it, I got to interview everybody living at that time: John 
happily, John Williams is still very much with us, but I interviewed him for it, and Jerry Goldsmith, and all those great original generation, earlier generation people, let's say. And my new book is on a similar subject, uh, fewer people living, but I had tons of material to work with. So it's fun to have a subject that you really love to, to write about. And I think on this new book that I've written about, basically the man who more or less invented film music, I know some would take issue with that, but who kind of put it all together, uh, a composer named Max Steiner, who scored Casablanca, King Kong, The Searchers, Gone with the Wind, many, many other great films. Uh, he's the guy who, when talkies first came in, convinced producers and directors it would really be okay if there was music under people talking. And it, was, and it wasn't because there was an orchestra playing on screen that people wouldn't freak out over it, which we take as a given in movies now, but it was definitely not a given. But I wanted to write it in a very cinematic way. So that was fun taking this project on and trying to write it with the kind of energy and propulsiveness that we want to have in our storytelling or you know, in music that we like. So, you know, form, the, the subject kind of dictated the style. And he was a funny, wisecracking, guy with great energy and a huge heart but that kind of the cynicism or let's say the the attitude you almost need to survive hollywood and all the things that people do to you and the the crazy demands that are made you i think you either have to have a sense of humor about it or it kills you and very very funny guy and so he was good company for all those years but uh, anyway that's that's what the article's related to okay so cool. was it the top five books and film music was that it uh, yes, yeah. So we'll see what we'll see what comes from all of that. So as a, we'll just randomly pick. What's but, your th number three choice? <laughs> you know, I haven't even told the writers, and I know some of them. So we'll just. Oh, know. okay. So Ooh, all right. Sorry about that. NDA, <laughs> right here. Really, when is the article supposed to run? Well, the book comes out May first, so hopefully May second to uh, the end of the year, somewhere in between there. Oh, okay. I didn't realize it was that long of a lead time. Uh, and and that wow. is one thing that's that's different about. Well, this is true of movies and everything, and and certainly mm -hmm. books, which is that some people need an advanced version of it far in advance. And mm -hmm. in my other life, I've produced a lot of behind the scenes material on movies, and that was always a fascinating process, which we can talk about another time if if it's of interest. Which is seeing how a film evolved from its earliest cut that you're given to start pitching ideas about what could be the interesting stories to in you know in 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 the before times on dvd and blu-ray and things like that and uh and then you would watch the film evolve as it had gone through marketing screenings and you know, especially after test screenings and they're shooting new scenes they're cutting characters out of the movie there's a new ending and usually the music isn't done until very late in the process. And you see how differently the movie plays with different temp tracks where the editors and others have put on different music. So uh, a lot of movie, you know, to sell a movie, you really start selling it months and months before it's, it's done and often just when it's starting to get made. So similarly for, for a book, I had to give magazines and some things like that an earlier version of the book. And it mm. still had typos, which drove me crazy. And dates where the either I or someone else had inverted a date that I would catch before the final one and fix, but things that people would never, never notice. But anyway, I had to sort of be comfortable with that going out in the world in that form. And then, you know, now it's basically done and they're printing the copies now and then it gets sent out. And Yay. in the world we live in now, yeah, I, I suspect that most of the interviews I'll be doing uh, won't be your traditional book tour, 
but done, done just like we're doing right now. And when I wrote my first book, I was in my 20s. And I remember going, this was in the 90s, going from coffee shop to coffee shop in LA with, with scotch tape, putting up flyers of, you know, this book, wherever I thought people who were into movies would be interested. And whereas in this, you know, new world we're in now, I could do two postings, one on Facebook and one on LinkedIn and get 1,100 responses, you know, from around the world in a few days, in spite of all that's going on right now, or, you know, so to go back to our original topic, uh, yeah, we all have to be sensitive about what we're selling and how we sell. And I think you can find some really, really bad examples of, of, of that starting from the person in charge of our government right now, boasting about ratings, but I won't go into that. That, but that would be my, my uh, in Highlights Magazine, some really older people remember Highlights Magazine used to have Goofus and, and Gallant, or Goofus and Gallant. Goofus did things badly and, and Gallant did things nicely and politely. And I feel like our president is, is Goofus. But uh, anyway, <laughs> so, you know, don't go out there and boast about your ratings and how great you are at a time where the split screen is showing some terrible, terrible development right now. Uh, but anyway, but, but kidding aside, as much as that was, if any of that was kidding, um, yeah, just be aware of what's happening in the world. And uh, yeah, people are, and, and people are hungry for stories that are even related to the, the, the fear that we have right now. I mean, a lot of, I was looking at, uh, you know, the, the, the weird timing that the, the Blumhouse remake of The Invisible Man has come out now. And I thought, wow, what, what incredible timing to have a movie available at home that's about some invisible force that can kill you that you can't see that's pursuing you. And is this going to help the movie? Are people going to even think about this as they rent it? Will it make people want to rent it more? Will it make people want to rent it less? It'll be, if they ever publish the, the numbers, you know, universal of how those movies that they released have done, that is to say big commercial movies where we would have heard the, the grosses on Monday, I'd be fascinated. But I thought that movie really had an accidental perfect timing for what we're living in of, of fighting a, a, the, a fear and a, a, something that we can't see and touch, you know? So, anyway. so if people want to find your book or find you, how do they do that? Amazon.com, Stephen C. Smith, Max Steiner, S-T-E-I-N-E-R. If you like the music for Star Wars, his music was the temp track for part of the score that John Williams worked from along with other music. So this is really about how an industry of music and Hollywood came together. It's not a, a, a boring history. It's a very lively, fast-paced account of how the world was changing and somebody who was alive at the right time in the right place to help change it in a way that is still... Uh, changing the world now. It was Max who was one of the key figures, for example, in having composers get royalties for their music for film and later TV. That was something the studios completely owned. ASCAP didn't want to get involved in film music at all, and Max uh, corralled all the top composers of the time and fought for over 25 years until they finally won. So any composer watching this who gets uh, residuals has Max Steiner to thank for at least part of that. And that's a great story too. But anyway, it's a lively, uh, star-filled account of tumultuous times. And uh, perhaps that this is, the this is the right time for that story, but. I think anyway. so. Well, thank you so much for joining us. So bad, I had such good key light and now I have like monster fighting. But oh maybe no, that's okay. Um, <laughs> Um, right. But thank you. It's great seeing you, Stephen. Stay healthy. You. And uh, we'll have you back in May uh, to talk more about the book when it comes out. And, you know, I'm on LinkedIn and Facebook. If anyone wants to talk about uh, any aspect of the film industry, I have worked with uh, 
Spielberg, Lucas, Scorsese, and some other guys, and I'm not saying I know their secrets, but I've been fortunate to, to sit at the elbow of a lot of very talented people and watch how they work. And I'm endlessly fascinated by process. It's one reason that I love your show so much, because it's all about process and the humanity behind it. So, you know, if anyone wants to reach out to me, they will find me in the, all the usual places. And I look forward to seeing you both, hopefully, in person someday again. <laughs> <Soon>. <laughs> hopefully sooner rather than later i, Thank I think you the so last much. time i went out to lunch with anyone it was with steven yes yeah, so. right before the outbreak, outbreak. Yeah, it <laughs> was it was right before then so Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> awesome. all right thank you bye bye-bye and i think we will wrap up as well stay watching. safe out there guys watching and we'll see you next week, uh, 4 o'clock next Tuesday. We'll be doing this again. Hopefully each time we do it, I'll get better at the technical stuff. So. <laughs> All right. All right. Um, see you next time.